Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Welcome, Skylar, to the Water Women Podcast. How are you today? I'm hanging in there, Jill. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you for asking. I'm super excited to get you on the podcast finally. I feel like we've had a couple of scheduling issues. Both of us just kind of been like, yeah. hey, can't do it today. But, you know, it's that time of year. It's it's that year. Yep. So I'm glad you got on. Yeah, me too. It's good to be here. It's been a, a crazy year. It's sort of an understatement, I think. <laughs> yeah, very much so. I feel like crazy is going to have a whole new definition after this year because it just doesn't even like encapsulate everything that's happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, well, I think wild is probably a better word for it. (laughs) Wild is a great term for this. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So I'm a Skylar Bear. I have my PhD in marine biology um, from the University of Maine. Got that about three years ago. And right now I'm an assistant professor of biology as an aquaculture and extension specialist um, at Roger Williams University in Bristol, Rhode Island. And so this is actually my first semester uh, at this new job. Um, and I'm, I teach a couple classes each semester, but I also get to do uh, research um, and some extension work, which means connecting in the community, um, especially in the aquaculture community. Um, and, and fisheries to some extent, but mostly aquaculture. So that's sort of the quick rundown of what what I do. <laughs> so is that something that you always knew you wanted to do? Did you always kind of know like that you were going to end up in marine science or did you find it later on in life? Yeah, so I would say I am one of those people that has always wanted to do marine science. I think before the age of eight, I probably wanted to be a uh, mermaid, but then that became an unrealistic goal as I <laughs> discovered that they weren't real. <laughs> um, Such a disappointment. Although I do love, I do love uh, folklore stuff. I still watch like stupid shows about um, mermaids, like Sirens. That's it's not a good show, but I'll still watch it. Um, it's like <laughs> objectively not that good, but. Anyway, so I always wanted to study marine science, although I would say that um, I was really obsessed with deep sea work for a long time. And I actually did my master's at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution um, in a deep sea biology lab. And I also I had done a internship there um, the, the summer between my junior and senior year of uh, college, and I actually got to spend a month of my senior year of college uh, at sea on a research cruise, and I got to go in Alvin, the submarine, to oh, go cool. see a live, yeah, to go see a live hydrothermal vent. Uh, so that was, I mean, that was amazing. It's like literally one of the best days of my life. Um, and I, <laughs> I really loved it, but I learned when I got to grad school there that if if you wanted to go study deep sea stuff, you know, you either, you had to have a big ship, you had to have money. And I think our lab at the time didn't have a lot of money. So we just had lots of old collections, which admittedly were like pretty cool, but um, it was really hard to design my own, you know, experiments uh, within the 
the time frame and, and finances I think we had at the time, but um, I, I wanted to do more active research, I think, and I'm not a huge fan of modeling, like I've done some, but I, I wanted to do more experimental work. And um, I read this book called The Unnatural History of the Sea, and uh, it got me really thinking about how much I cared about human impacts um, on the marine ecosystem. And I really wanted to do work that could um, be applicable to people, like very directly. So like fisheries and aquaculture kind of work is directly uh, applicable. <laughs> um, and also I really, really like science that's very applied and that can be um, explain to people beyond science. Uh, I think that's really the kind of science I like to do. And so I ended up going to University of Maine to work on this project looking at sea scallops um, and their reproduction. And one of the goals of my PhD was to develop a way to measure fertilization of sea scallops in the field. And I'm not sure how familiar you are <laughs> with uh, fertilization issues in marine organisms, but eggs and sperm are very, very small, and the ocean is very, very big. <laughs> and yeah. so developing methods to, to figure out if eggs are getting fertilized um, requires a lot of patience and timing and coordination between uh, getting oyster, uh, sorry, scallops to spawn in the lab and then also to, to get these little eggs out to the field to experiments within a timely fashion since they're only good for so long. Um, and then coming back and checking to see if there happened to be a spawning event, <laughs> which you can only tell by uh, counting these tiny, tiny little eggs under a microscope. So there's, there's a lot of methodology development um, in my background and I really enjoy it. I love combining the field aspect with the lab aspect and working with organisms. And, and while you know, sea scallops are a very valuable fishery, um, but they're also a really difficult animal to work with. <laughs> and, and they're really cool. Like scallops have uh, tens to hundreds of eyes and, and um, huge gonads, at least sea scallops are, and they can swim. And there's just, they're such cool animals. But um, there's so much we don't know about their basic biology and ecology that is relevant to um, harvesting them, frankly. So uh, it allowed me to, to get to work on issues that seem really relevant to people and uh, really relevant to some cool marine animals. So, um, and then I've... I've done some other things since my PhD. <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk about those next, but, but that's, Absolutely. yeah. Um, oh, I forgot to mention that one of the, one of the projects that has become really important um, over the last few years is we developed all these methods to detect fertilization and spawning events um, with sea scallops in the field, which is hard to do. And so we, we knew a spawning event had happened if we put out these tiny little eggs and they were fertilized, right? Um, and it's also going to tell you what percentage of eggs get fertilized, which is also very helpful information. But if we just wanted to detect spawning events and figure out how frequently they are, um, which is really hard to do, for, for a lot of marine organisms, frankly. So um, where I did my PhD, the Darling Marine Center, which is this 
remote little station in mid-coast Maine. Um, across the Damerskata River is the uh, Bigelow Labs, which is really well known for their um, biological oceanography and frankly, a lot of cool, cool tech looking at super tiny things in the ocean. <laughs> um, they do some really cool work there. So I ended up collaborating with um, Pete Countway over there to develop a way to detect spawning events with DNA, so sampling environmental DNA. And so we developed um, a probe and primer set, basically a way to latch on to specifically sea scallop DNA, uh, no other species. And then we used a simple size filtration method where we filtered anything um, under, under 10 microns, which uh, we would assume sperm would be less than 10 microns. Um, so we just sampled that water where anything was less than 10 microns to see if we could detect scallop sperm as a proxy for a spawning event. And uh, we developed um, all of this methodology in the lab. We tested it on scallops that spawned in the lab. And then we put some scallops in some nets and hung them off the dock and sampled seawater when we could over, I think, like it was two months or something. And we got results. So um, apparently uh, extracting DNA from seawater can um, tell you whether or not a species might be spawning. So, yeah, it's really cool. And uh, that, that is work using DNA methods to detect spawning events um, or larvae. That's another interest of mine. It's something I hope to do more of uh, in my career as I go forward. Um, so that, that's been a really exciting project and direction I've started going in, but after my PhD, I did a short postdoc studying, um, muscle population dynamics in down East Maine, uh, for a little bit, but then I went to, uh, the U S Senate for a year for a Canouse Marine Policy Fellowship. So it seems like a bit of a left turn, but yeah, I really, that's out, of, that's out of nowhere. Well, the thing is, is that, uh, throughout my PhD, um, I've cultivated a lot of science communication skills, um, because again, that applied science that I'm so interested in and passionate about, I really care about people being able to access that information. And by doing a lot of science communication, um, especially as a PhD student, uh, really helped me think about best ways to talk about things and think about my audiences um, and to, to really start to at least try to understand um, how people think about science and what are the best ways to, to uh, bridge information um, to them and to learn from other people because honestly, like, there are some really good questions that come from people who aren't scientists about, about the environments they live Absolutely. in or near. <laughs> uh, I think sometimes you get almost like a, like talking to people who aren't in the scientific community, you get a really interesting outlook because they might think of things that you wouldn't necessarily think of in a, with a science brain. Like they might be like, well, how will this affect our community? And you're like, oh yeah, we were kind of only thinking about this or like just you're going to get a different outlook. And so it's going to force you to think a different way, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, a great example of that too is fishermen. Um, 
fishermen go out on the water way more than most scientists that study the same system ever do, right? They, mm -hmm. they go out, you know, maybe close to every day, uh, in some cases during a season. And so they're actually collecting a lot more frequent information with their observations. And it may not be the same type of observations or uh, process the same way, but it's still a lot of information that a lot of scientists aren't necessarily going to get on their own. And so it's really valuable to hear what their perspectives are and, and what they see. And so I think like collaborative and cooperative research is really valuable to get um, those kinds of perspectives from people who are out there a lot. So, yeah, so back to, um, I went to DC for a year and I'm working in the Senate uh, was really, really great experience because I got to learn a lot about how policy is made um, on Capitol Hill which um, these days it's really important to understand uh, how policy is made, what policymakers are looking for in terms of whether or not they're going to write a bill, fund it, um, value it, uh, as all this relates to science um, or conservation or marine resources or aquaculture or fishing. Uh, and having that kind of information on, you know, at least experience of how things work on a federal level um, helps helps understand why things, you know, if you let's say you have um, a big meeting between the the local uh, managers of the fisheries and and fishermen, and people don't understand why, you know. Um, we can't just change the rules this way or why it has to be voted that way or why a certain amount of money has to be attached to something. Um, all, the, all those kinds of procedural <laughs> kinds of pieces of information uh, are really important to know when, you know, you go back to um, your community that you want to do work in uh, if you're trying to make policy changes or understand why a policy might be affecting people a certain way. So um, I did that about, for about a year, and I really wanted to go back into research. I learned a lot. I had a great time. I made really great connections in D.C., and I um, ended up doing a postdoc at Milford Lab, uh, in Connecticut, <laughs> and I worked on a project studying how oysters um, from aquaculture farms uh, improve water quality by extracting nitrogen out of the water column. And we're still processing results from that, but um, that that was a lot of my postdoc work that I did. Uh, so that's that's you know most of the science and a little bit of the policy in my. My background. Um, haven't really talked much about the SciCon stuff, but <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. It's really interesting that uh, you focus a lot on bivalves because mm -hmm. they're not like usually when you ask people like what they think of when they think of science and like marine biology and whatnot, they think of these like large charismatic animals like whales and sharks and rays and even fish, but. I feel like bivalves aren't something that people normally think of, like on the list. It's it's pretty far down. What what interested you about them? Uh, well, my my joke answer would be um, the Little Mermaid's bra, but uh, 
Uh, but really, it's, yeah, I think, you know, um, one of the things I learned in college, and I think before college, is that I was just always so fascinated by marine organisms in general. And in college, I got to take like invertebrate zoology and do lots of labs. And I also got to take a vertebrate physiology course. And that actually turned me off from working with uh, vertebrates because like we had to dissect a stranded dolphin and um, skin cats and do all these things with animals with faces. And it just made me really nauseous. So it's slightly less easier to kill animals that don't have faces. Uh, And I mean, it's just sort of a reality of being a biologist is that whatever you study, you end up killing a lot of, Mm -hmm. um, which they don't really tell you in undergrad. But um, yeah, you end up killing a lot of them, whatever it is. And so um, I think that partly contributed to it. But I think other elements were that I, I liked uh, a lot of marine ecology studies, and um, that usually involves a lot of invertebrates because some of the most famous marine ecology studies are like people go to the intertidal and they're like, ah, oh, there's barnacles here, there's starfish here, <laughs> there's mussels here. What happens if we scrape some barnacles off, you know, those kinds of things. So there's usually a lot of them and, um, and they're easy to manipulate and you don't need like an Aya Cook form to fill out. Um, and I think with bivalves, you know, they're consumed a lot, right? They're really important to fishery markets. Um, but more than that, I think bivalves are just really cool animals. Like mol- mollusca in general just has some of the most wild and and amazing creatures. Um, if you look in there, I mean, just their genetics. I don't. I think most people don't really know what's going on with them, <laughs> and uh, they're just amazing examples of adaptation to their environment. Like there's a bivalve that's called a boring bivalve because it's figured out how to bore its way into rock and then it stays there and lives its life in a rock and it, it, it secretes something that allows it to dissolve the rock and bore into it. I mean, that's just crazy. And then you, insane. yeah. And then oysters are like the best natural filter you'll ever come into in your life. Like, like uh, run into, sorry, the best natural filters you'll ever run into in your life because they will keep filtering after they're full. It just becomes pseudo feces instead of feces. You know, they pseudo feces is like uh, the equivalent of putting something in your mouth and spitting it out. So um, they 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 just will keep making piles and cleaning up the water. And sea scallops have adapted to only have one adductor muscle that allows them to swim. And then you have the Antarctic sea scallop, which is one of the only invertebrates that can freely move around the Antarctic uh, bottom at at super cold temperatures. Um, And there's lots of really cool things that bivalves do, but they're just really amazing animals. And I think that they're underappreciated. They're (laughs) definitely underrated. That is 100% for sure. Yeah. I've said before that I'm like a big verts girl. Like I'm, I'm a whale girl. Mm-hmm. I like bigger animals, but I took a class this past, like my last semester of school called Inverts, and I literally sat there and I was like, like it was just all about inverts. And I mean, obviously I had touched on them briefly in other classes and whatnot, but this one was just a straight focus on them. And I was like, whoa, these are so much cooler 
than I could have ever imagined. Yeah, they're just really exciting once you start learning about them. And I mean, uh, not a bivalve, but a, um, a crustacean is the, oh, why am I? It's a stomatopod. Uh, what's the common name? Um, sorry. Uh, the mantis oh, shrimp. There's a couple of different kinds of the mantis shrimp that can see was it over 16 different colors and causes cavitation with, with the, the heat bubbles and everything like in terms of striking its prey. And, you know, there's just so many cool, cool things that uh, you can find. And the truth is, is we've just scratched the surface in understanding all these organisms. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you were mentioning earlier uh, like fisheries and you were interested on the human impact of that. So how can you measure a human impact on bivalves or mollusks or anything like that? How do we affect them in what way? Well, we affect them in lots of, <laughs> lots of ways. <laughs> um, I, I suppose some classic examples are, uh, you know, like the Chesapeake Bay used to have these massive oyster reefs and the water was clear and there'd be like whales and dolphins and all sorts of amazing creatures. But then people came along and they're like, I really like, I really like these oysters. And then they started, you know, harvesting them in large, large numbers. And, and then on top of that, right, there's uh, as people started farming, all that fertilizer runs off into the rivers, which is all part of the watershed of the Chesapeake, um, which increases the amount of algae with all those nutrients. And if you're reducing your filter feeders, the oysters, um, eventually the water is going to get less clear, right? And then you can also have hypoxia where um, those plankton aren't getting consumed by the oysters. And instead, when they die, they get consumed by bacteria, right? Which then mm. sucks up all the oxygen out of the water and causes massive like hypoxic events where you can like literally see crabs and stuff run out of the water. Um, and so that's one example. So, and oysters are, um, you know, we do a lot of harvesting and aquaculture now, but we've really changed the marine landscape of, of how they used to be in, in a lot of places. Um, and I mean, all bivalves, not just oysters, are really great filter feeders. So anything we do to reduce bivalve presence usually uh, impacts the water quality, right? Um, yeah. Other ways is just a lot of it just has to do with eating them. Um, although pollution can definitely be part of it. I know that uh, when I was reading about Connecticut to learn some of the history, um, one of the reasons why the industry took a... Um, a crash at the beginning of the 20th century was, you know, there was too much uh, human waste coming out of the rivers and into these oyster beds and the oysters really couldn't handle it. And so um, I think that's part of the reason why the population may have crashed in Long Island Sound. So, I mean, those are just some examples. There, there are lots of other um, interesting examples. And, but humans have also had relationships with with the uh, bivalves for a really long time. Like in Maine, you can find these giant shell middens uh, from Native Americans from thousands of years ago. Uh, and I mean, a midden is basically a trash pile, um, but it's, you know, mostly oysters. And so, you know, clearly they'd been harvested for a long time before colonizers got to the 
I got to North America. Um, those are actually interesting because the soils in Maine are so acidic in the northeast of the U.S. in general. I'm not sure if that's true where you are. <laughs> but, so I don't know if your soils there are as acidic as ours, but what that means for archaeology uh, purposes is that a lot of old bones get dissolved into the soil, right, from the acid. Mm-hmm. But because these middens have so much calcium carbonate in them, right, that they're presumably very basic. Uh, they find a lot of preserved bones, whether it's human or, say, fish bones or all sorts of evidence of, of human existence, and it's really cool. <laughs> um, and, uh, and on the west coast of Canada, there are these clam gardens. Have you heard about the clam gardens? I haven't, actually. What are they? So um, the, the, the first peoples, I don't know if it's first peoples or Native Americans in Canada, isn't it? Yeah, so the, the indigenous groups of um, uh, coastal uh, British Columbia, um, they, they, for thousands of years, uh, I think, I want to say more than 3,500 years, um, there's a paper that came out about this actually in the last few years, um, had been altering the the coast uh, a little bit to to make what they called clam gardens, and they would make these walls and flatten out the um, the intertidal area to make it uh, a better area for I think butter clams is what they call them um, to to live and grow. And there's probably some other species that benefit, but I remember the butter clams and. And someone did a, this group of scientists, I think, did an archaeological, it was more than an archaeological dig, they did like core samples. um, And they found that these butter clams were uh, pretty small until people started essentially gardening them, creating these clam gardens. And then they got a lot bigger. And then um, from what I remember reading, when colonizers came and and, uh, indigenous people were not encouraged to do their uh, clam gardens anymore. And I think we're forced to abandon them. In a lot of cases, the butter clams started getting small again. <laughs> so um, it's really amazing, you know, what kind of relationships people have with bivalves all over the world. I mean, there's lots of example examples of, um, of cultures having harvest practices or, um, or management practices one way or another. Uh, many, many places for bivalves or, or other kinds of mollusks too. So. Cool. Those are really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I recommend um, looking them up. I think, I think I've told that story mostly correctly, but that was, that was what I remember. Finding one of these can be a little difficult. What's this swimsuit made out of? How is it sourced? Why doesn't it fit me right? And most importantly, why the heck can't I order different sizes for the top and the bottoms? This is why Water Women is so excited to be teaming up with Sisterly Swim to share with you their sustainable swimsuits that you can fit comfortably into. 
This is a family-owned business from sisters who are passionate about the environment and have developed these amazing swimsuits that come in six, yes, six different sizes. And if you don't feel comfortable in those six different sizes, they'll even do custom sizes for you. Yeah, custom sizes. How awesome is that? Each suit is made from fabrics that are 100% derived from fishing nets and carpet fluff that have reached the end of their usable life. Not only that, the packaging, postcards, and tags that you get are all made of 100% compostable materials. If I haven't convinced you yet, how about this exclusive deal only for Water Women listeners? You can get 15% off your entire order when you use the code WATERSISTER15. That's WATERSISTER, one word, one five, for 15% off your entire order at sisterlyswim.com. These are swimsuits that you can feel good about wearing and feel good in. Water Women Podcast is so excited to be partnering with Caitlin McCall, an eco-conscious diver, for the launch of the new course, A Complete Introduction to Marine Conservation. Trying to learn more about marine conservation and how to implement it into your own everyday lives can be very overwhelming. There's lots of rabbit holes and misinformation that can be found on Google, but this step-by-step guide from Caitlin is the best place to start and allows you to make marine conservation a part of your life every single day in the easiest way possible. Only six hours of at-your-own-paced online material stand between you and your future of marine conservation. Make sure you use the link in our bio to get the course at a discounted price for a limited time. We can't wait to hear what you do with this. So you were supposed to have a little bit of an adventure in 2020 where you were supposed to get to go do some research in Iceland. What were you going to be doing there if this uh, virus did not mess everything in the world up? Yeah, so I had written a, a Fulbright proposal. It was only for about three months, but I was going to go work with the scientist Jonas, really great guy, um, <laughs> to basically look at Iceland scallop uh, demographic and life history and fishery data. And so the story of the Iceland scallop is um, I think most of the harvest had always come from this big bay um in in iceland and i think about i want to say like 15 years ago or so there was there was a crash um in the in the population and i was thought that disease was part of it and um and maybe overfishing as well and so the populations have been monitored since then um although i'm not sure they've really come back to the levels they once were and so what I was going to do is I was going to do basically some data mining between um, the survey data of the adults. They've collected some spat bag data. So spat collects, spat bags collect, um, they're called spat. <laughs> and they're basically newly settled ju- juveniles of uh, lots of different kinds of bivalves. But in this case, we'd be looking at Iceland scallops. Um, so looking at that information and uh, looking at when they're spawning, 
and looking at temperature and basically trying to see if there are connections between all these different life history stages, uh, the environmental uh, parameters of the bay. And then also, you know, they've been collecting data um, frequently from multiple places in the bay. So if it was possible, if we had enough data, we could see if there were some geographic patterns as well. Um, and presumably I would get to go out <laughs> at some point too because for their annual surveys, but uh, it was it was mostly a data project. But those can be really valuable because uh, one of the reasons we wrote this proposal is that um, Jonas just didn't have, you know, enough time to do this kind of thing and uh, and they just needed more help to do this kind of work. So, um, yeah. Cool. But you unfortunately didn't get to do that. So what are you doing now? How are you using your time to continue your scientific journey? Are you leaning more towards more research or scientific communication? What are you doing now? Well, I spend a lot of time teaching right now. Uh, and I have a lot of data from my time at Milford. That's, you know, it, it took us a while to get the um, nitrogen analyzed. The Between the pandemic and, and technical issues, the elemental analyzer, that's the tool that's needed to measure. All these samples are a lot of samples that we took over the course of a whole year. Um, that finally was able to... to to go underway with the, the lab technicians this summer. Um, and we're just about close to getting all those numbers. And we're also working with modelers. And so part of the work I have to do this fall is to go through those numbers and do calculations and start working with the modelers. And um, I do have a couple of papers that <laughs> still need to be written. And I'm starting to write proposals to do work in Rhode Island. And um, it is very possible that I could go to Iceland next year, uh, next summer for three months. And that's part of the, the plan. But we will see with the pandemic and everything what's going to happen. So yes. um, don't know, but TBD. <laughs> and then you also have a very exciting project coming up. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I had mentioned that I have done a lot of science communication work, or yeah. I should say I became kind of a connoisseur, like where I would try lots of different kinds. Because the way I saw it as a grad student, I was like, um, I was like, well, I'm learning how to do science, and I want to learn how to do science communication. So I'm going to try blog writing and go on Twitter, and I'm going to... Um, try doing live events and all the different kinds of formats of ways you can do communication work. I had a radio show slash podcast <laughs> for a long time. Um, I've collaborated uh, with Ocean Science Radio. We did a whole mini Ocean Lovin' series all about reproduction in the ocean. Uh, we actually did a second season of that last year. So, and I played around with video at one point. I've done a lot of different things. And so um, one of the things that I got really into as a grad student was storytelling, live first person um, storytelling, sort of like the Moth radio show. And uh, one of the groups that I got involved with was the Story Collider. There was a science communication conference in 2013 that I went to and the Story Collider was asking for pitches. And so I pitched them a story about when I went down in Alvin, when I was a senior at Brown, 
um, where I went to undergrad. And I got to call my dad when we were in Alvin, um, which was was really unique situation or whatever. And one of the reasons I wanted to tell that story at that time was my dad had just had a stroke. Um, and so it was really hard because uh, it was hard on our whole family. And so that was just one of the stories that I like to think a lot about when I think about connecting with my dad. And so I told this story, went really well. I ended up telling it again in Boston instead of Miami, which is where that conference was. And went on the podcast and I said to the story collider people, I'm like, oh, I'd really like it if you guys came and did shows in Maine. Like there seemed, there could be some good storytellers here. And they're like, well, why don't you help produce them? And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, I didn't know what that meant. Um, and so I became a producer and I have been one on and off, you know, for the last uh, six years, six or seven years, something like that. And so I started to cultivate this real interest and um, uh, I suppose like science communication um, form that I really enjoy is the storytelling. And I've done, I've benefited greatly from being part of the Story Collider Network for a long time. And just briefly, a Story Collider is like, an, is a nonprofit dedicated to telling true personal stories about science and they do live shows and have a great podcast. And, and then during the pandemic, they've been doing online shows, which I highly recommend going to. Um, just really fantastic group of people. Um, and we have retreats uh, in the last few years. And for one of the retreats, I wrote a story about uh, this one time I was alone in, <laughs> in our scuba diving boat while everyone else was scuba diving. This was during my PhD in Maine. And one of the reasons why I was often alone in a boat um, on the surface is because my first semester as a grad student at UMaine, I got diagnosed with a cardiac condition that resulted in the implantation of a pacemaker. Well, it's an, called an ICD, but it, and it's really there to defibrillate me, but it can also pace me. Just people usually know what a pacemaker means. Yeah. So, um, so I was uh, not allowed to scuba dive anymore because you're not allowed to at least dive for scientific work um, with uh, an ICD. And I worked in a scuba diving lab. So I spent a lot of time um, alone on the surface, feeling sorry for myself <laughs> sometimes, sometimes not. Um, and so it was, a, it was a story about that. And our artistic director at Story Collider, Aaron Barker, was like, wow, this is a really beautiful story. Um, I feel like you could publish that writing or something. And, and then she also had mentioned Gabby Serrato Marks um, as someone who's told a similar story about her condition affecting her field work. She's like, I don't know, you guys should go do something. And usually when Aaron suggests an idea, it's a good idea. <laughs> um, Aaron Barker is like one of my heroes. <laughs> and, uh, and so I approached Gabby and one thing about both Gabby and I is we're we're both like MIT alums she she got her PhD there um, I was in the MIT Hui joint program for my um, degree my master's degree and so we were like yeah we should do a thing where we have lots of contributors not just our stories and maybe we could make a book like maybe we could make a book but neither of us had ever published a book we're like oh how do what do we do and I I literally bought a book on like called how to publish a book or how to write a book proposal 
Um, and so we had like a first round of submissions from scientists with disabilities or medical conditions because we wanted to be kind of broad. And we wanted to have stories with lots of different experiences, um, not just like sad stories or, or yeah. um, you know, we wanted to show that there's a real mosaic of experiences out there. And then, I don't know, sometime last year, we are like, well, we have a bunch of stories, but no one knows, like, uh, that we're interested really in this topic. Although Gabby has a much higher profile than I do in the um, disabilities and STEM world. And, uh, and so we wrote an article for Scientific American about um, what, you know, what it's like having medical conditions or disabilities and that some, you know, we can view them as positive attributes, like they can make us creative and excellent problem solvers and, and academia and the world of science in general should make room for us and, and help us because we have a lot to contribute. So a very positive aspect to it, um, which because that's like what we want. We want we want inclusion and we want to um, we want to see things get better. We don't want to just point out everything that's wrong. And so um, we had a uh, editor from Columbia University Press approach, uh, I think Gabby, about if she ever had happened to have any book ideas. And she's like, well, actually. <laughs> and so we wrote a book proposal and had it reviewed. And we are under contract with Columbia University Press. We have around 30 um, scientists' personal stories or 30 contributors that will be featured in Uncharted. And we called it Uncharted because of the double meaning of the word, you know, charted, uh, like mm-hmm. a nautical chart, uh, but also a medical chart. And, <laughs> like and the idea that it's, you know, um, I, I don't know. I want to know that all of it's novel ground, but it's definitely uh, things we don't often talk about in science is like how we personally um, live with something different about us, right? Especially medical conditions. Uh, oh, absolutely. Right. It we is, often get shamed about it. Territory. Yeah. Like you're kind of taught to either take time off because you're unable to do something or sit down, shut up and pretend it's not happening. The two yeah. almost can't coexist at right. the same time is how it feels. Obviously that's not how it is, but it feels like you have to either be down and not moving and not working or pretending you you don't have this thing going on with you yeah like I have this thing but I can still continue to do my work and here's how I do that kind of thing so I think this is absolutely a fantastic idea yes and so we've really tried to um include uh you know we can't (laughs) I wish we could include every story that's out there, but we, we're trying to have a broad array of um, uh, types of medical conditions, uh, disabilities, um, experiences. We're trying to have early career, uh, a few later career folks, people in the middle, um, you know, uh, lots of different sexual orientations and gender identities and, um, you know, racial or ethnic demographics. And, and honestly, like we were, we did another pitch call and we were impressed by 
the number, or I would say like the diversity of types of stories we just got from opening up a pitch call, we were kind of worried about, uh, oh, are we just going to get a lot of the same kinds of stories, but not at all, you know, so we didn't really have to seek out <laughs> um, a lot of, you know, diverse stories and, and contributors because they already were there uh, sending us pitches. So um, that's really exciting. That is so cool. So when when is this coming out? When Do you have like a timeline so people can keep updated and Yes, I should send you our link to our, um, uh, we have a a Substack newsletter and I'll send you the link to that um, where you can get um, essentially newsletter updates. We should be sending one of our first ones out next month. Um, And we're due to get the, you know, the book to Columbia University sometime next year. But um, in terms of when the actual publication, you know, when you can go buy it, (laughs) uh, you will be able to keep up with that if you subscribe to the newsletter. So that's awesome. So I will link that uh, along with this podcast with everything like we have a little link tree. So it'll be linked in our link tree and on our website. I'll make sure to share that. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. So if people wanted to follow along with you on your journey of being a water woman, where on social medias can they find you and follow along with you or check you or learn more about you and check you out? Um, I think maybe the best spot is Twitter, although these days I don't write a lot of original posts. But when something big does happen, I usually write something about it. Um, but yeah, on Twitter, I'm uh dr sr bear uh d-r-s-r-b-a-y-e-r so you can follow me there perfect and do you have a website or anything that anyone can check out yeah and you can get the link through twitter but uh my twitter bio but it's uh skylar bear dot wordpress.com perfect Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for joining me today. It was super awesome to have you on and I'm super excited to share this episode so more people can learn all about these mollusks and why it's important to study them and all about Uncharted. Great. Thank you, Jill. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to rate and subscribe to it. You can also follow us on all of our social medias. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also find more behind-the-scenes info on our website, waterwomenpodcast.ca. I am so happy to keep sharing these stories of different water women each week with you. And until next week, stay salty.